Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Galactic Chat, and this is David McDonald. Today, I've got the great pleasure of welcoming Pat Cadigan. Pat Cadigan is a cyberpunk author who was born in uh, New York in the United States and is now living in London. Her list of achievements would be far too long to list right now. She's won a World Fantasy Award and a Locus Award and a Hugo Award, amongst others, and uh, her books uh, and her short stories have been entertaining people for a long time now and uh, have have um, been some of the seminal works, um, especially in the field of cyberpunk. So welcome to the show, Pat, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What can I tell you today? Well, all sorts of things. Um, I've got quite a few questions here for you, and uh, if we diverge, that's fine. I'm sure our listeners will be delighted to hear all, all about um, what you're working on. What I thought we'd start with, um, just for our listeners, is if you could just tell us a little bit about how you began writing and about your journey to publication. Okay, well, uh, there was never a time that I remember when I didn't want to be a writer. And I was always writing stories. And, uh, in fact, my my mother gave me this ancient uh, manual typewriter. And, I mean... Is like you have to have like killer strength in your fingers to punch the keys. They were, you know, it was uh, it was quite a quite a little monster, and and I would always roll a piece of paper into it and start typing chapter one. One day my mother looked over my shoulder and she said, "Maybe you should start with short stories and build your way up to a novel." And I thought, well, that makes sense. So uh, I just kept writing a lot of stories, and then uh, when I was about twelve or thirteen. I discovered uh, Nancy Drew. So I decided to do my take on Nancy Drew. It was very, very disciplined writing. You know, I had uh, I had a notebook, and I hand-wrote it, and every chapter had to occupy two sides of the page. No more, no less. I had to get everything in there that I needed to get into that chapter. And I think I must have written about half a dozen of those. And uh, they were all maybe about... Um, 120 written pages long, which is which is a fair amount of dedication for, you know, someone that age. And, I mean, I wasn't just, you know, sitting home writing all the time. I was doing lots of other things, too. And uh, eventually, when, uh, when I started, uh, when I started university, I started really thinking in terms of, uh, you know, typing it up in the proper format and sending it out. And uh, and once in a while, I actually did that, and I'd, I'd get the you know the um, the form letters back the, with the manuscript, and then then I got really serious when uh, when I moved out to uh, to Kansas to finish my degree at the University of Kansas with my first husband, and uh, he was getting his PhD in theater, and uh, and I was just finishing my my bachelor's, and. I noticed uh, one day when I was in, in the bookstore in the Student Union that there was an ad up for, uh, for the World Science Fiction Convention. They were going to have it in Kansas City in 1976, and Robert Heinlein was the guest of honor. And Robert Heinlein was like God to me. So I wrote the committee and begged them 
begged them to let me join the committee and help them put on the convention. I'd just do anything. And, I, you know, it's like later on, of course, they told me what a big laugh they had about this, this obvious, you know, clueless newbie writing, asking to be part of the convention and, you know, I'll do anything. And, uh, but that was actually a good part of my, my road to publication because there were some miscommunications with, with Mr. Heinlein as the guest of honor. And, uh, and so I ended up being the liaison between the Heinleins and the committee so that, uh, and we got everything all smoothed out and, uh, Heinlein was, you know, we, we hit it off in a major way, and we were friends from that time until he died in the late 80s. And um, I'd never told him that I wanted to write. The only person who, who really knew, other than, you know, a few of my friends on the committee, was James Gunn, who had been my teacher at the University of Kansas. And uh, and he told Mr. Heinlein. And so Heinlein encouraged me, and, um, and uh, other people encouraged me, but... No one, no one, you know, smoothed the way for me or anything. I went in through the slush pile, and I eventually uh, got a, my first acceptance from Marta Randall, who had taken over editing the New Dimensions uh, series of anthologies from Robert Silverberg. And she bought my first story, which is called Criers and Killers. And, uh, and after that, um, the, but I'd gone from, you know, form, form rejection slips to personal to form rejection slips with a personal note at the bottom saying nice try let's see your next one to personal typed rejection slips and then finally to acceptance and the the period of time was from when I was really seriously submitting work from 1976 to 1979 and I um that was about how long it took with concentrated writing stories with an eye to submitting them rather than just seeing where they'll go. So it was uh, it was about three years of, of concerted work, and then after that there were more acceptances trickling in than rejections. But I was also working full-time at the same time, so I didn't have as much time to write, and short stories were the the one thing that I could that I could finish, you know, uh, on on a schedule of working eight hours a day and then coming home and, you know, dying for, you know, an hour or two and then going back to work, this time on my own stuff. So when, when did you make the step from short stories to, to writing novels? Well, let's see. I had always, I, I, I'd been trying to, to write on, on a couple of novels. In fact, I, I have a completed novel hidden Hidden in one of my drawers, that's uh, a, a vampire novel that I wrote, and I wrote and never sold. But uh, I, um, I'd been working on on some ideas, and uh, I had sent a proposal to my then agent in the United States, and she sent it to Shauna McCarthy, who was at that time a book editor at Bantam, and Shauna said, "I don't care for this." But you know those stories that you've been writing about the, the, the woman who, who goes into people's minds? I like those. Why don't we have a novel about her? So I went to New York, and Shauna and I sat down, and we, I, I had written these stories. There were like four of them, I think. 
And uh, they were they were novelettes. They weren't you know they weren't little short stories. So we sat down and between the two of us we sort of uh, devised a, a chronology for them and uh, something that would happen. And we it was a it was a fix up. And that's what I did. I fixed the stories up. Although there's a lot more original uh, material in Mind Players, which was the name of my first novel. There's a lot more original material in that book than there is fixed up material. The uh, the fixed up material just sort of guides the 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 plot arc, the story arc, and then we. Uh, but it's a you know it's a novel, and uh, so that was my first novel. And when it came out, some people were saying, oh, it's a fix-up. It's a fix-up. It's not a novel. It's a fix-up. I've got news for you. Childhood's End is a fix-up. And so is A Canicle for Leibowitz. And I'm not comparing mind players to either of those. But, you know, it's like if you're if you're going to slag it off, slag it off because you read it and you didn't like it, not because it's a fix-up. A fix-up is a, it's, a fix-up is a book, a novel that is made on uh, a skeleton of related short fiction, if you see what I mean. I was going to say it's a, to a novel. It's a great uh, science fiction tradition, really. So it's a bit rough yeah. <laughs> criticizing you for that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, yeah, I've always, I guess, I've always been a little bit touchy about that. You know, it's like people say, but it's a fix-up. You know, it's like, well, it isn't to people who've never read the stuff. So, <laughs> and. Uh, well, anyway, that's my that's my first novel. So, so you talked about um, Robert Heinlein, obviously one of the the, the greats of the genre. Mm-hmm. In terms of your major influences, um, was he an influence on your style of writing, or more just on your um, on the writing journey? And and who who were some of the other influences in your writing career? Well, Heinlein was was uh, definitely an influence because. Heinlein could make you read all the way through one of his books just because you had to see how it came out. You might not like the book, you might not agree with the book, and you might even be, you know, dissatisfied by the ending, but by God, you had to read all the way through it to see to see how it came out. And that was really what I was reaching for in my own work, to make it something that, that people would want to continue reading because they had to find out what happened. And then afterwards, they could decide whether, you know, it's like they really liked the book or not. But uh, that was what I wanted for my own work, to be, you know, to be that compulsively readable. Um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, whether whether I've done it or not is, is up to the individual. Some And some people don't react to Heinlein's work that way. I do. And I, I always did. When I was at the University of Kansas, I came across a book called Stand on Zanzibar by John Brunner, and I was absolutely blown away by it. And I wrote him a fan letter and care of his publisher and told him, you know, it's like how how incredible it was. And it really was, uh, it was, it was one of those seminal works for me. Also, a writer named Cordwainer Smith. There is no other voice like Cordwainer Smith's in in the the science fiction pantheon. Uh, no one else wrote books like him. No one else wrote stories like his. And uh, and he is he's a unique voice. He was a unique person. He was you know one in a billion. Uh, he arranged a a silver loan between China and the United States when he was 17 years old. 
he he you know he was a very very accomplished man. Accord Wintersmith, of course, was uh, his his pseudonym, and he like I said, he wrote stories like no others with um, with titles like no others, like uh, the Dead Lady of Clown Town, you know, um, the day the people fell, it, uh, just amazing visions. And uh, there was a story called The Game of Rat and Dragon that absolutely pre- prefigures just about all of my work. I must have read that story over and over, and it's it it's was you know I think it 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 woke the the cyberpunk in me. Let's see, who else? Anthony Bester, of course. I just found his his work mind-blowing again. Philip Jose Farmer. Judith Merrill was an influence both as a, as a writer, but also as an editor. I found her um, Best of the Year anthologies in the public library, and I just devoured them. There just weren't enough of them. They only had a few. And so when I when I was able to to get to use bookstores and and search search them down, you know, it's like I tried to find as many as possible because there were amazing stories, you know, in these in these in these anthologies. And she had not just combed the science fiction magazines; she read everything. So there were there were stories in there by Bernard Malamud and John Cheever and Tully Kupferberg of the of the Fugs. And uh, uh, just people that uh, that I never would have heard of. You know, I mean, of course, I would have heard of John Cheever and, and Bernard Malamud, but I wouldn't have seen those stories. I would just have seen maybe their novels or maybe their collected short stories if they had any. But um, she, you know, it's like she did amazing, an amazing comp- compilation of uh, of stories. And my ambition was to write a story good enough to, to be in one of those best of the years anthologies. Uh, of course, they were, you know, they, the series was done by the time I was, I was published. But I did get to meet Judith a couple of times, and it was, uh, it was a wonderful thing. And I got to tell her before she, she died that she had, you know, that she was part of the making of me. So you, you mentioned a, um, a word there that I wanted to explore a bit further, and that's cyberpunk. Uh-huh. Um, now you're, you're considered one of the, the seminal voices of, of the cyberpunk genre and I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about cyberpunk and where your interest in it sprung from. Well, John Shirley describes cyberpunk as tribal and I think that's the best uh, description of it that I've, that I've ever heard. You know, people with certain affinities kind of clump together, you know, as birds of a feather, so to speak. And actually, I... I wasn't in on the initial convergence. I had uh, I had just had a baby, and and I, I so I had a baby in a full time job, and and I was writing, and I was you know there was no this was back in 1985 when there was no internet, no you know at least I didn't know about any bulletin boards. There I guess there were people had. Computers with modems at the time. I didn't. I didn't buy a computer until I got the advance for my first novel, and I was able to to buy a, a computer and and finish the novel. But uh, I one day I got a I got an envelope from someone called Vince Omnia Veritas, and I knew that this was Bruce Sterling because I'd gotten a. Uh, a fan magazine from Lewis Shiner, and uh, there were all uh, there were all articles written under pseudonyms, and he'd written 
a key to the pseudonyms on the on the back cover. And so I knew that, that Vince was Bruce, <clears throat> but he wrote to me as Bruce Omnia Veritas. And uh, <clears throat> and anyway, the the package was full of this magazine called Cheap Truth, and uh, Bruce had written had read my my story Rock On, which appeared in Light Years and Dark originally, edited by Michael Bishop, and he really liked it. So we got in touch, and uh, he you know, gave me the, the phone number of a bulletin board to, you know, that I could dial up and, and read. And, you know, he said, and here's here's a bulletin board if you're a cyberhead. And I wrote back and I said, I'm not a cyberhead. I don't even know what that means. And I, I didn't, in fact, when I bought my first computer, it didn't have a modem in it. I had to buy it later on and then figure out how to use it. But uh, I am proud of myself. I installed my own modem the first time ever. I actually opened up the box of my of my computer and I put the modem in and hooked it up properly. So I'm I'm still very pleased with that. And that was you know like 30 years ago. But um, uh, so I I finally managed to you know dial up a bulletin board and it was very fascinating and you know it was very it it seemed very almost magical and. I, it wasn't even like 1,200 baud, so you know it's like if you can imagine the, uh, le- the 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 messages sort of melting into existence in a very leisurely fashion and scrolling up a uh, my orange and black screen. And that wonderful but, sound uh, that we don't hear anymore. Oh yeah, the the handshaking, the you know, yeah, I do sound effects too sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so eventually. Um, I, I actually I had met Bruce. I'd met Bruce the day that my second husband and I got married, and we were at the um, the World Fantasy Convention in I think it was Fort Worth. Anyway, it was Texas, and um, Harlan Ellison was there, and Stephen King was there, and Stephen King's first uh, not his first novel, Stephen King's novel The Stand was just about to be published. And uh, Lou Shiner was there, and he, he wanted to um, conduct an interview so he could use that along with a review that he was going to write of the book. And I, Stephen King is, you know, it's like I just started to read his work, and I had read Salem's Lot and The Shining, and he had that compulsive readability like Heinlein. You want to get through the book. You want to find out what's going to happen to these people. You may not like the book. You may not like the people. You may not agree with, you know, what's going on with the author's point of view, but you, by God, have to read every word so that you can find out what happens. And uh, I thought, that's, that's the kind of writer that I want to be. I want to, I want to be someone that, that people really want to read, that they just really want to lose themselves in, you know. Anyway, we we actually interviewed Stephen King, but I met um, I met Bruce Sterling there, and uh, I knew Lou. Then, um, well, that was in '78, and then 1985, right after I had um, I had my son, I went to the uh, the NASFIC, which is what they have in North America when the World Science Fiction Convention is outside of the United States. They have a big convention for all the Americans who can't get to whatever country the actual Worldcon is in. 
And uh, that year it was in Austin. So I went to Austin and uh, and I met Rudy Rucker for the first time. And uh, um, I'd met John Shirley before. I was meeting him again. Bruce was there. And we had this... Uh, we had the cyberpunk panel that um, that was actually kind of a disaster because it it, it got hijacked by um, well it's not even worth talking about but um, it really wasn't that I was trying to write like a cyberpunk I was writing what I was interested in I was writing stories that I wanted to read or I was trying to write stories of the type that I really wanted to read and when Ellen Datlow started publishing uh, Bill Gibson's work in Omni. Uh, it really struck a chord with me. You know, it res- Bill's work resonated with me, and it still does. Every time he has another book out, I fall in love with his work all over again because he's uh, he's just brilliant. He really is. And at the same time, when when Ellen Datlow took over as fiction editor at Omni, she'd asked uh, some other editors about, uh, you know, writers that were up and coming that, you know, she might she might look into. And Gardner Dozois gave her my name. She got in touch, and she'd read some of my work, and she said, I hope that you'll submit to Omni. So I started submitting to Omni, and, uh, and not everything sold right away. We often had to, you know, to work on it together. But uh, I'd do revisions, and she'd buy the stories, and, and that, was a, <laughs> that was wonderful because Omni – was what uh, was what we called one of the slicks. It's slick magazines, slick pages, and slick paychecks. They they paid very well. And, and some of the great writers at the time too. Yeah, yeah. Ellen, Ellen really has that editorial touch. She can work with Joyce Carol Oates. She can work with me. She can work with someone who's only had maybe two or three stories published, and she can get the best out of all of us. So a lot of your work deals with the interface between the human mind and technology. So mm-hmm. it must be interesting times at the moment. We're living in the, the age of um, smartphones and we're seeing starting to see the wave of devices like Google Glass and, and Oculus Rift, mm-hmm. which are starting to appear. So as, as someone who has an interest in that, have you observed many of the impacts on society and people that you might have expected? Um, how prophetic do you think your work and other writers was? Well, there, it's, it's a funny thing, you know. Um, I mean, I feel like Google Glass and Oculus Rift was, uh, those were easy ones, you know. It's like we everyone's been predicting those for a while. Uh, the technology just had to, you know, the technologists had to get, had to get their act together and, and actually make them. But some funny things have, have you know, I've seen happen. Um, people who read Sinners for the first time now, um, don't find it as science fictional as people who read it when it first came out. And it's not even so much the technology as the fact that um, I had reality shows and sinners. I didn't call them that. What people did was they, you know, these um, uh, freelance uh, cameramen or camera people or, you know, people would go to parties and film everything, and then put it on what I called the the data line, which would be you know the internet or the web now, and uh, and people would watch them for entertainment. Um, in at one point, I have a I have a person 
who has been uh, appropriated and being kept against his will by a large corporation in a in a room because they want him to to do the hacking for them or something, and uh, he's all he can do is lay on the couch and watch TV. And he's watching TV, and a program called the Twenty Five Worst Air Crashes in the World comes comes up on the television, and you can watch that now, you know. And I I started started calling things porn. Data, uh, not data porn. Uh, war porn, food porn, tech fantasy porn was was my secret code word for cyberpunk, and uh, and and all of a sudden people started calling things you know war porn and food porn and things like that. So um, I've seen uh, I've seen a, actually a surprising amount of things that were similar to what I was writing about, but. But not necessarily the expected things. So, are there things that you've written about that you think are just on the horizon, um, similar to those those sort of things? I suppose um, I I really tried to make everything as uh, as plausible as I possibly could. The um, uh, there are people who have head sockets in 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 centers, and of course that's you know it's like. I just did a lot of research on the brain. It's way out there, you know. It, if people ever have head sockets, it's probably not going to be like that. But on the other hand, I did do a lot of research on the MIT Media Lab. Stuart Brand had written a book about what they were working on in the Media Lab, and I got really excited, and I based a lot of the technology on the already the things that they were already making in the lab as you know prototypes or even just talking about making in the lab as pro, as prototypes and if i hadn't got a hold of of Stuart Brand's book in fact sinners probably wouldn't exist in in quite the same way so i based just about everything i could on sinners on things that were already in development so it's it's not really that surprising. Anything that hasn't come to pass, you know, that I've written about in Sinners, they still have yet to determine that it's impossible. So, you know, it's like the um, it's it's very still very open ended. Are you a big technology user yourself? I would be if I could afford it. <laughs> the problem is that um, uh, technology is not. Affordable. I mean, really good technology. We 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 scrimped and and saved and bit the bullet and, and did everything we could to finally get a really good desktop computer. And it costs a lot. You know, it's like when people uh, have have people on online or communicating uh, around the world in, in novels and things with their you know the futuristic uh, hand computers or whatever. No one ever ever mentions that there's a long distance bill to pay, you know, uh, and that can be uh, the you know the charges for like 3G and 4G with a with an iPad. I I couldn't afford that, you know. It's like I have an iPad, and I have an iPad because um, well, actually, my first iPad, uh, some fans sent it to me. Some friends of mine who are readers sent me an iPad that was the first model and I was just enchanted and uh, and but I had to run from uh, from Wi-Fi spot to Wi-Fi spot to use it you know when I was out because 
I couldn't afford a 3G phone bill. And uh, um, see, that's the thing. It's like if you want really good technology, you have to pay for it. It's like Bill Bill Gibson said two very uh, absolutely true things. The street finds its own uses for things, and the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Most of us have to wait for the price to go down on things before we can acquire them. So I, I wish I were an early adopter, but I'm just not that well off. There's a big price tag on it. On, yeah, on being an early adopter. yeah. Speaking of, of, of being connected across the world, um, you, you many friends and fans were, were saddened recently to hear of your, your cancer diagnosis. Now, you've yeah. Been, you've been very open about this on Facebook, and I was wondering whether you think that the, the way, the fact that these days you can almost, this all plays out across the internet and being able to engage with people uh, during this time um, in a way that might not have been possible even five years ago. Has that helped you deal with it better or has it made it harder? Um, well, actually, you know, I didn't really intend to, to, to live out loud so much. And, um, and it, it just sort of happened. I before I put anything on Facebook, if I if this had been some some kind of new development, I talk to my my family and my closest friends first, so they don't have to find out anything by seeing it on Facebook. But um, I I started to talk about it, and then I would get messages from people uh, saying. I'm not telling anyone, but I'm going through something similar, and the way you've talked about what you're going through has helped me an awful lot. Or they'd say, I'm not talking about it, and we want to keep it quiet, but my my spouse or my sibling is uh, going through this right now, and I'm trying to take care of them, and you're helping me understand. So um, it just sort of it just sort of happened for me. And... Uh, um, I, I, when I got my diagnosis of doom, I came home and the first thing I did was I went on Facebook and I said, will everybody please post something funny on my page? I've had a bad day. And everybody did. And, um, I was surprised. And then, uh, after I'd talked to, to my son and, and my close friends and told them what was going on, I, uh, I posted on, on Facebook exactly what, how I'd had a bad day. And, uh, and I was just amazed at the response. Uh, not everyone has been, has expressed their support publicly. There are people who just aren't comfortable making that kind of, you know, supportive emotional statement for an audience, and uh, but they've contacted me privately, and I, you know, it's like it's that's wonderful too, and uh, I, it really has made things a lot easier on me. To uh, I, every day I get up, I look at my Facebook page, and it's full of funny videos and jokes and pictures, and and in between there are you know. People saying, go, Pat, go, and, and I'm so glad the chemo is working, because the chemo is working. And, uh, and, you know, it's like, that's, it's really nice to wake up and, and feel like you're glad to be alive, you know. And I don't, I don't dwell so much on the, uh, on the uh, real downside of, of 
recurrent uterine cancer because the, the prognosis generally isn't good. And uh, I, I really think more about, uh, you know, how, how much I'm enjoying my life one day at a time. And, uh, you know, it's, nobody actually knows how long anybody's going to live. You can, you know, you could drink and smoke and carry on and, and like Wilson Tucker, live to be 92. Or you can, uh, you know, it's like keep clean and your body's a temple and exercise and eat right. And, and when you're 35, you walk outside one day and a piano falls on you. Probably from the Acme Moving Company. But, uh, uh, so, you know, it's like all you get, all you get is, is whatever you have at the time that you have it. And, uh, there's no reason why it can't be, uh, uh, full of full of fun and and laughter and things that make you glad that you're here while you're here. So, um, you know, I I have had I think a much easier time coping with this than uh, than I would if I if I hadn't gone public about it. And I you know it's like I I wrote an ode to my to my eyebrows. My eyebrows are disappearing now. My, I've lost my hair. Isn't, doesn't this sound gorgeous? I've lost all my hair, and they told me that I might well, besides the hair on my head, I would lose a lot of body hair, and now the, the eyebrows have started to disappear. And so I wrote an ode to my eyebrows, and I, I talked about um, what chemo feels like. You know, it's like the days after chemo and, and, and how you... You kind of, you're on a downward slide when you start feeling the chemo really working, and you get tired. You, you know, you feel you feel very down, and then and then that that part of the chemo wears off, and and you start feeling lighter again. You, it's like coming up the other side of a V. And people, a lot of people, wrote me privately and said, "Thank you for explaining this. This helps me." take care of my husband or I now understand my wife or I now understand my mother, my father, whatever. Uh, And it's really helped me uh, know what to say to them and how to react to them. Because people, people who have cancer react in a number of ways. You know, it's like I, I laugh about um, I'm punching cancer in the face and laughing at it. There are people who don't like the expression, uh, the battle against cancer because one um, one person said he felt like the doctors were battling cancer and he was the battlefield and uh, and some people do feel that way I I don't I've always had a, a really good experience with with hospitals and doctors because every time I go to one they save my life but um, everyone has to find like the metaphor for whatever they're dealing with that they can live with and and work with, you know, the best. So there isn't any particular, you know, way to to go about something like this. It isn't, you know, it isn't right only to go public with it. It isn't right only to keep it private and not ever tell anybody until, you know, it's like you pop off and then they find out why you left. But um, it's like however you can handle cancer or depression or, you know, it's like whatever life changes you're going through, you handle it that way. And, uh, and you know, it's like there's no wrong way. There's just, you know, there's a way that's wrong for you and a way that's right for you. 
and you find it, you do it, and you don't apologize for it. Well, it's it's been, um, I mean, obviously seeing on Facebook the outpouring support, and um, I'm sure that there's lots of people um, who are keeping you in their thoughts and prayers, including myself. And I think, well, thank um, you. And I think, you know, as you say, um, a lot of people, you know, have even if they don't want to talk about it publicly, uh, are taking a lot away from being able to see how you deal with it. So I think it's been a, a wonderful and brave thing, and I hear that the chemo's working. Yes, it is. It is, as a matter of fact. Um, I've, uh, I've, they've been able to tell just superficially from, uh, from some of the changes that I'm going through that uh, it has to mean that uh, uh, some, at least some cancer cells are dying off. I've, I've got a scan scheduled for next week, and that will actually, then they'll be able to see uh, for certain. But for now, I'm proceeding on the, on the basis that the cancer is working. I'm punching it in the face, laughing at it, and killing it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it should be quaking in its boots, really, the way you've approached it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things you... You've also advocated um, for recently on, on Facebook um, is the idea of starting a new initiative to provide uh, uh, some sort of mentor program for, for newer writers especially, um, and especially those from groups that may have been traditionally disadvantaged in, in the science fiction and fantasy sphere. Could, could you tell us a little bit about why you think this is important and what you'd like to see happening? Well, this is actually a program that I wanted to participate in and I had to step away from because uh, right around the time I would have been starting, I got cancer. But um, it, I don't know how familiar anyone is with the, uh, with the uh, requires hate Bean Janoon uh, situation where a um, someone under several different names over over a period of 10 years or, or even more, has, uh, has been um, attacking people. And at first it was, it was in other communities online. I think there were gamers uh, and, and then uh, fan fiction people, and then there was uh, communities on LiveJournal. And this was someone who, who managed to kill a few communities by posting such poisonous, horrible uh, comments that people just didn't want to go to the community anymore because if they said anything, they'd be, you know, they'd be attacked. And uh, there was, if you, if you Google Laura Mixon, uh, report on the damage done by one person under several names. It's something like, like that. I, I don't know if I have the exact wording of the title right. Um, you, can, you can find out the history on this. And as it turned out, um, a lot of people supported this individual because they claimed that she was punching up, that she was, you know, that she was uh, uh, punching up meaning uh, uh, attacking the establishment, you know, the, uh, the, that was imposed on people of color and that discouraged writers of color. And in fact, the people who were driven away were from, from the science fiction field, who were driven away or, or driven into silence, were actually women of color, most of them. 
And uh, although she managed to rattle to rattle a few people so much that um, that they all but disappeared from from online, and a few people just quit writing because they felt it it just wasn't worth being abused by someone and being told that you know they should have acid thrown in their face and uh, and be raped by dogs and you know I mean. If someone sent you one email like that, you'd you'd laugh and throw it away. But this this was they'd get emails for months, you know, with this with this kind of you know violent hate in it, and uh, they decided they just didn't need that in their lives. And if you think about you know, it's like the average person when the average person has an altercation online with somebody on on maybe Facebook or Twitter or something like that. And I don't mean someone who likes to go out and, and, and mix it up. I'm talking about, you know, just just us, you know, us us people who, who get online and like to chat with our friends. When you when you have some kind of altercation, it'll ruin your day. You know, it's because it's it's not just uh, just arguing with someone. It's it's on your screen in your personal home, you know, and it's like something that, that follows you. Most people don't care for that. There are people who do, like I said, who do like to go out and mix it up, but that's them. And um, so, anyway, a lot of these, a lot of these people were were women of color, and uh, and we were talking about what we could do, you know, because it's a fine line that you walk. On the one hand, you don't want people to to have to take that kind of abuse just because you know they disagree with somebody. Or because their writing doesn't please someone in in, in the same way, uh, but you on the other hand you don't you don't want to intrude and police everybody either. You know, it's like you can't do that. You just can't. So we were we were talking about um, the group of us around Laura Mixon were talking about how best to help people. Without, you know, without, without being Big Brother, you know, and uh, and so I said I've been thinking a lot about a mentoring program for writers, particularly writers who are isolated and don't have easy easy access to uh, like a, a community of of fans or other people who want to write. And these are mainly people of color. A lot of them are, live in Southeast Asia. Um, some of them are in Western Europe, Eastern Europe. You know, it's like they live in far-flung places. They have made contact online, but they're pretty isolated. And writing is isolating to begin with. You can't do it unless you sit down and, and shut the world out to some degree. And you have, you have to be alone. You know, now I used to work around this when my son was a baby. I'd pop him in my front carrier and he'd snooze on snooze on me while I reached around him to the keyboard to, to do my writing. But uh, but, you know, it's it's still you have to do it alone. And when you write, you know, it's like you you send your work out there and everybody doesn't get fan mail. You know, it's like you send your work out there and. You hope someone liked it, but you're not likely to hear that anybody did. 
Certainly not right away. You might years later, someone might say, "Oh, you wrote such and such." You know, I really like that. Um, but writing is—it's solitary, and you don't get feedback right away, and you may never get feedback. And uh, um, I've taught Clarion West uh, three times, and uh, each time I've gone in there, and my my public persona has has scared everybody. And then when I get down to them and I talk to them, um, they're always surprised. And they say, but you're so nice. And I say, I'm not nice. I'm not saying nice things to you. I'm talking to you so that you will listen to me. So I can come in here and rip you all up one side, the, uh, one side and down the other. But you can get that for free on the street, you know. You can send your work out and, and people will happily jump up and down on it with both feet. The world will, the, the, the initial, the initial, uh, thinking was you discourage writers or artists or musicians or whatever just as much as you possibly can so that only the ones who really, really want, you know, want to accomplish or achieve will, will, will do it and everyone who's easily, uh, who's easily discouraged will, will go away. Well, I say the world will do all of that for free. But we don't have to. And uh, it's not like I'm saying we should, we should just encourage everybody, whether they have talent or not. Because, and then again, on the other hand, talent, talent is cheap. You know, everybody's got talent. Um, it's whether you have the, the fortitude, you know, the, uh, if you will persist, you know, it's persistence that really makes the difference many more times than talent. Everyone's got but, an idea for a novel, but there's not many yeah, people who actually write it. Yeah, one, one out of a billion will write it. you know. And out of all of those people who write it, one out of those will actually finish it. But anyway, um, so uh, uh, I thought, you know, this is an extraordinary circumstance. It's one thing to... Uh, to have the world discourage you, and it's another thing to have the world cyberstalk you for months and send you threats. And we're going to lose good people. We're going to lose good people not because they lost interest, but because they were scared away. And that's that's wrong. So, and and writers, particularly in our genre, have always been very supportive. We we have a pay it forward policy. You can't pay back the help that anyone gives you, but you can pay it forward and help somebody else. And that's pretty much how things work in the science fiction, fantasy, horror fields. People, you know, support each other. We all support each other because writing, particularly in genre, you know, every time I think publishing can't get worse, it gets worse. You know, it's like something else happens and it just, you know, it just gets harder and harder. And so we have to be our own safety net, and we have to look out for each other. And if we want this field to be something that we can be proud of, we have to bring new voices and new visions into it all the time. And, uh, and we're not going to get that if, if people who, people are going to be driven away simply because they, you know, it's like they lack the, they lack any contact. They they don't feel like they're supported. And I had I had posted about this, you know, because there were some people saying, "Oh well, 
nobody should be bothered by, you know, what she does or what she says, no matter how harsh it is, because she's talented. And this person, this person is talented, but she's not one in a billion. You know, it's not, it's not such a giant talent that I, I think, you know, it would justify this kind of behavior. And, um, when I think of that, you know, as I think of people who have been on the, on the sharp end, uh, seeing this, you know, seeing, seeing these things online saying, oh, but she's talented, so that nobody should, nobody should do anything about it. You know, it's like, what does that, what's the field saying to them that doesn't matter that they've been, you know, they've been abused because the person who did it is talented? What is that, what, what kind of message is that giving them? What would they think the field was saying to them? So we, a number of us decided that it would be good to get a mentorship program going where people, you know, writers, particularly writers who feel marginalized, who are marginalized, who, you know, who don't have very, very many uh, people like them around, you know, that they can that they can get in touch with very easily, that they can contact and say, uh, you know, can you mentor me? Can you, um, will you read my work? Will you, uh, will you answer my questions? And that's what we want. You know, it's like we haven't had any kind of uh, formal programs like that. And uh, I think, I think now, I mean, we've got support groups for everything else. So I think it's time for, uh, for us to be a little more proactive in, uh, in looking after each other. No, I, de- I definitely agree, and um, hopefully, uh, as as that coalesces, obviously you've you've got other things going on at the moment, but hopefully, as that um, gathers steam, uh, people will be able to find out about that via you know it being promoted online and things like that. So, oh yeah, yeah, it's it's really still in the uh, in the formative stages because uh, this is this is something that that has to be well, it has to be formalized, and uh, it has to be it has to be done properly. Uh, would-be mentors have to be vetted, you know. Um, we don't, we don't, you don't really want people with all the answers. You want, you want people willing to listen, you know, more than, more than teach. People who are willing to um, uh, hear uh, people's different points of view. And see, that's one of the problems is when you have people all around the world you have time differences, you know. So um, someone's having a crisis at 11 a.m. their time, but you won't see it until, you know, 11 p.m. their time. As, as, as you well know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's like we have a little time difference here. So, um, so all of these things, you know, are, are part of, of, uh, of, of various uh uh, challenges of becoming a writer or any other kind of artist, and uh, maybe some of the people who are mentored won't persist, and they'll lose interest, and they'll, you know, they'll go away. But so what? Maybe it'll make more thoughtful readers out of them. Maybe they will have a greater appreciation for the material that they read. Maybe they'll become editors. Um, you know, it's like we can always use some more of them. Uh, but 
uh, it doesn't matter because uh, because there are always more people. You know, it's it's okay. Well, it's one thing for them not to persist because they decided it wasn't for them, as opposed to yeah. persisting because they weren't made welcome. So yeah, yeah. In terms of your uh, your recent work, um, obviously you, you won the Hugo at um, LoneStarcom for sure an amazing story. <laughs> um, what what other yeah. things are you you working on at the moment, and what what do you think the future holds? Uh, do you have any projects that you're, well, you're looking at starting? Well, I spent I spent like a year fulfilling some short fiction uh, obligations, and I still have a couple left over. But mostly, I'm working on the novel that uh, that, that takes its uh, that springboards from the Yugo winning story, the girl thing who went out for sushi, and uh, this is a completely different novel. I, this is, of course, the story was unlike anything else that I'd ever written, and uh, um, I really I really got that story out of having attended something called Launchpad in Wyoming under the. Uh, 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 leadership of uh, a writer named Mike Brotherton, who's also uh, an incredible scientist and astronomer. And uh, this is this is a program of science for science fiction writers. And we would we would sit in class, and these wonderful people would come in and tell us all about what was going on in the sky and latest developments. And uh, uh, it was a fabulous experience. And it made me more confident about writing a, a, a story set in space. So when Jonathan Strand asked me for a story for, for Reach for Infinity, I thought, well, this is as good a time as any to, to try one. So I tried it, and, uh, and I liked it. And I didn't think it, you know, I had, I had no inkling that, uh, that it was going to be as popular as it was. And uh, so uh, now I'm writing the novel. The novel is, is set about a hundred years after the the story, and uh, and involves uh, all the sushi and the uh, uh, the the people who have settled in outer space. And uh, and I've made some interesting discoveries about the way um, about the the communities the. They, they turned out, they didn't turn out the way I thought they would, you know. It's like I sort of let them grow from the various situations that the characters would... I let the characters go, and then they'd start filling in the background for me, you know. And I'd, I'd get the idea of, of what things were like. And, um, and my outer space isn't going to be like anybody else's outer space. And... Um, that's that's all. I, I'm, no spoilers. Uh, I that's all I'm going to say. Except that um, the things that have occurred to me about what it is, what it would be like to live in outer space under you know, in this way, uh, have uh, have raised questions for me that um, that didn't occur to me. You know, when I was when I was reading reading other kinds of work. And uh, I'm, it'll be interesting to see uh, eventually how, well, first of all, how, how an editor will respond to it. And then, uh, if it sells, how, uh, how the readers will respond to it. Because it's, um, it's, 
I mean, it's it's a it's a story set in outer space. It's not, you know, I'm not going to say it's unprecedented, but it's not going to be kind of your standard. Or no, there isn't really any standard, but it's not going to be Earth in space. Well, if it's anything like the story that it's uh, springing from, then it's going to be very interesting indeed. I'll be looking forward to that one. And, um, Thank you. You were saying about some short story commitments that you had to, to finish. Are there any things that you can tell us to look out for, or are they still still uh, well, top secret? Well, no, no. Um, this year, Ellen Datlow has a uh, an anthology of about of doll stories coming out, and I'll have a story in that. And uh, let's see. Actually, I think a lot of the short stories came out last year, so I had like five stories out last year and uh i'm i've got uh i've got one or two more that are you know things that uh that i can't talk about but you know they'll be out and uh and i'll let everyone know that they're out because uh i'll (laughs) i'll tweet it and put it on facebook (laughs) excellent well, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Um, well, it's been great. And uh, I'm sure that all of us will be cheering you on as you keep punching cancer in the face. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we'll be looking forward to, to reading not only your short stories, but when that novel comes out. So thanks again. Well, thank you. Bye-bye.